0: Well, if you heard today's reading, uh, it did seem like uh, a bunch of rules. Uh, I equated almost to a bit of a code of conduct. Now, many, many years ago, I worked at the tax office, the Australian Taxation Office, and they had some pretty strict codes of conduct uh, because their employees, uh, including myself at the time, we represented the organisation. Now, our code of conduct, it reached far beyond the times that we worked in the workplace Uh, It stemmed beyond the times that we were wearing our building passes outside of the place. Uh, There were expectations that our character as employees of the federal government uh, would convey the moral and ethical codes that they all stand by uh, in that organisation, which included things like how we drove our cars, believe it or not, uh, and the types of people that we were in our home lives. All of this mattered to them. Now, I thought I would make a joke about how I would repented from being a tax collector because, you know, I cheated people and then I've repaid people four times, but I didn't have a chance to cheat people because this is against the code of conduct, right? ATO's moral standards are through the roof. But when it comes to codes of conduct, I'm sure you guys all know what I'm talking about to some degree because even your schools have codes of conduct, especially when you're wearing the uniform. Uh, everyone's workplace will have one, universities will have one. And even outside of that, there are just expectations about how we should be living as moral people in the society that we are part of. Now, here in Titus 2, uh, what Evan read for us, we come across a huge bunch of rules for the Christian household. Uh, These rules are kind of like a, a household code of conduct for Christians. And while we don't wear uniforms, though some would argue that this is kind of the young hip pastor's uniform, the, the check shirt. I don't know where that assumption came from, but this is all that I own pretty much. You're not wearing a Christian uniform per se, uh, but we do see in Titus 2 that, that there are Christians living in Crete, which is this island in the middle of the Mediterranean. If you have your Bibles with um, maps at the back of it, um, I love maps by the way, the first thing I do want to pick up a Bible at Karong is flick to the back and see what kind of maps they've got. You'll you'll see a big part of the Mediterranean Sea, and Crete is this kind of rectangular-looking island, one of the bigger ones in there. Uh, And Titus is on this island, and this is where the letter's being addressed. And we see in Titus that these Christians living in Crete were called to a certain standard of living, a certain code of conduct because of the grace of God. The problem is that as Christians we preach grace every week, And when we come across a passage like this, it does feel very rules-based. It feels very blunt uh, and very heavy. You know, don't do this, Uh, do that. We should be doing this as Christians. We shouldn't be doing that as Christians. And it kind of can play into that stereotype of the Christian buzzkill, the one who isn't allowed to do anything, who needs to be protected at all costs. I want us to hold that thought because the motivation for doing good doesn't come Uh, with the pressure of being a buzzkill, but we'll address this towards the end as we see it's shaped by grace. In fact, I think there's a very different picture of these roles that are being given here, uh, a joyous picture of what it means for the Christian household to live for Jesus. Uh, But before we get there, we need to first understand uh, what's actually happening on this funny little island of Crete uh, and what's caused Paul to write down in chapter 2 these list of rules that we had read for us. And so this, uh, if you have outlines, there are a print of 15 of the slips. I don't know how many people were expecting from that, but if you're following along, uh, you have your outlines there. We're going to start at point one. False teaching is ruining entire households. Well, if you've ever uh, been late to a meeting, like you join in uh, halfway through and you sit down and someone up the front looks at you and they says, you what do you think about this? And you gulp and think, oops, (laughs) what have I missed? (laughs) What are they asking me? What's what's the context here? Well, this is how chapter 2 begins. Uh, Whoever decided to put the chapter breaks in here, they weren't in the original text, Uh, they broke up chapter 2, and so it begins with the words, you, however. Uh, And this is one of the perils of starting here instead of chapter 1, starting mid-book, because when it opens with you, however... (laughs) We know straight away that in today's reading, we've missed something. There's something in chapter one that we've overlooked, that we've come in late to Titus here. But this is where we're beginning uh, because of a a number of complicated reasons with preaching. We're going to have James Cashman uh, preaching Titus 1 for us next week um, because right now, yes, he is probably tearing up the dance floor at um, Andreas and Monique's wedding. But because of this, we're starting chapter 2 here, and so I think what I'm going to do is take us through a very brief speed run of chapter 1, because it is important to understand what we have before us. By speed run, uh, I mean we're going to look at three short verses in chapter 1, and it pays to have your Bibles. Uh, if not, I'll have a few things on the screen there as well for us. Uh, firstly, if you flip back to Titus 1, look at verses 10 and 11, and this is where we find out what's going on with the church on Crete. Paul writes, for there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households. How are they doing this? Well, they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So in two short verses, we have a pretty thorough picture of what's going on. We have these quote-unquote rebellious people who, who seem to go on with meaningless talk and deception, teaching things that they ought not to teach. Now, this might not seem like a huge problem except for the fact that these false teachings were spreading like wildfire through Christian households, right, through families living on Crete. And in Paul's own terms, it was ruining them. The problem Paul saw was that these false teachers uh, were disrupting entire households by their teaching in verse 11. And not only doing this, but they're doing it for the sake of dishonest gain. They're greedy and they're vicious and yet deceptively influential. Now, recently uh, we got a dog at our place. And uh, if you have a dog, um, you'll know what I'm talking about here. When they give you those puppy dog eyes while you're eating dinner, going, oh, please, please, master, can I have some of the food on your plate? It's the ones which scream, feed me, I haven't been fed in weeks, despite the fact that the dog's just been fed. Right, greedy for more, able to con you into believing their lies. That's kind of like what these false teachers were like on the island of Crete. Now, Paul's solution to this problem Uh, and it's very heavy, it sounds kind of scary, it sounds kind of mafia-like, is that these people must be silenced. Now, unlike the mafia, he's not going to make them an offer they can't refuse. Uh, He's not going to kidnap them into the back of a van and make them swim with the fishes or anything like that. Uh, Rather, silencing them in verse 11, it appears to involve a demonstration of God's grace in the lives of true believers... They're silenced by the lives of other people. And this is perhaps most obvious uh, in today's passage in chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul has given the younger men their instructions. And he concludes that they're to do this so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. They've been silenced. And this is one of the key uh, themes uh, of Titus that the truth, that the truth of God's grace, actually transforms the believer. Now, contrast this with chapter 1, verse 16. Now, for example, Paul says that these false teachers, they claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. And so, when you're looking at at Christians or even Christian teachers on Crete, this is the key difference. That those who live by grace are slowly being transformed through the faithful practicing of godliness as a result of their salvation. And so, chapter two, far from being this rigid code of conduct for the Christian household, it actually serves as a reminder of what God is already doing in the lives of his believers. Uh, It's an exhortation to live faithfully uh, the lives that we have out of thanks for the truth. That he's given us. The problem is that these false teachers in Crete—they were coming and they were preaching lives that encouraged reckless behavior, lives that didn't reflect our salvation. They encouraged shameless lifestyles that actually stand at odds with a claim to know God. But the good news is, this is exactly why Paul left Titus in Crete. Uh, He wanted Titus to fix this pickle, Uh, and a big pickle it was. He he knows that Titus, this young man, is actually strong enough, has enough character to be able to have a good crack at this job. And so the first solution he gives Titus is to appoint faithful elders, which we'll see in next week's sermon. That's uh, what chapter 1 covers. Uh, because the context of chapter 2 uh, is the next thing Titus is to do, and this involves the teaching of sound, or literally is translates healthy doctrine. Because this is where false teachers will be exposed in their doctrine, a doctrine which leads to actions which actually denies their belief in God. And so by contrast, Paul's doctrine, this teaching of sound or or healthy doctrine, lived out in the lives of the local households will function as a demonstration of God's grace on Crete because this teaches us to say no to ungodliness, literally to deny ungodliness uh, in our lives. And so with this, I want to turn our attention to this solution, this this idea of grace lived out in our lives, the grace applied lives uh, as we approach the second point. So the solution to these false teachers, uh, to this false teaching, is to teach healthy doctrine. Now, if you've ever heard the term, fight fire with fire, um, this is kind of what Paul's doing here, right? So, there's bad teaching coming in from one side, they're going to fight this fire with the fire of good teaching from the other side, right? This is what Paul's attempting to do through Titus. So, the passage opens with these words, you, however, right, this contrasting statement, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, And this is Paul's way of saying that he means business. While they're disrupting entire households with their meaningless talk and their deception, you, Titus, must teach something else. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Literally, Titus and the newly appointed elders are to teach what is healthy doctrine, right? The low uh, GI, low-carb, high-protein option of doctrine. Because the KFC option of doctrine simply won't cut it. It won't nourish Christian households. And yet I think this is what's happening in Crete. These guys, they're claiming that like a bucket of deep fried chicken dripping with 10-week-old oil in those vats is tantamount to healthy eating. Entire homes in Crete are being disrupted by believing the lies that spout forth from these Cretan, uh, Cretan, 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 it's Cretan threaten something else. These Cretan false teachers. Um, And we don't know exactly what they taught. Um, It doesn't give us direct examples in Titus 1, but Paul does mention Jewish myths, probably getting bogged down in genealogies and other things as we read in other of Paul's letters, Uh, and things like things that are merely human commands, that perhaps they're lifting up as divine things that we should be doing. At any rate, I think it's possible to deduct something of their lifestyles Uh, The lifestyles that they're encouraging in their teaching simply by looking at Paul's summary of them in verse 16. Right when he says that they are detestable, it's really strong words, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. They live a life that is contrary to the gospel, a life that when Paul looks at them, it actually denies God. But not only this, but they're teaching others to do this as well, claiming that somehow this will lead to spiritual health. It's kind of bonkers, right? You'll get spiritual indigestion if you try and live out what these guys are teaching, spiritual clogged arteries if you feed on this stuff. Put simply, you can't have a diet of poor Christian doctrine and expect a healthy Christian life. And so here in chapter 2, This is where Paul turns our attention to what healthy doctrine looks like, particularly regarding the Christian home. Now, we don't have time to look at every detail. There's quite a lot in there, and he breaks it up into a lot of different sections. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through them relatively quickly, and we're going to stop and pick up on things as we go. So, he begins uh, in verse 2 with older men. He says, teach the older men to be temperate worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, many of these things, uh, when we go through chapter 1 next week, they're actually qualities that that overlap with these guys called overseers in chapter 1. But essentially, I think these are qualities that you should expect uh, in anyone developing into a good, godly Christian. Uh, From here, he moves on to older women, saying from verse 3, likewise... Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now, much of this is kind of similar to the older men, by like conveying the general idea of self-control. In fact, self-control is a big theme because that's what these false teachers seem to lack in chapter 1. This idea of self-control and Christian maturity is brought out with the older women. But these older women, they're also to teach. Uh, In fact, they're to teach the younger women. And this is a very uh, sneaky move of Paul here because he doesn't want Titus teaching the younger women because Titus fits into the category of younger men. And we'll see what I mean by this in a moment. So if you look carefully at verse 4, Paul doesn't command Titus to teach the younger women, but he says this is the older women's job. So women's ministry, there is a model for it right here in Titus 2. He says, they, then they, the older women, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, before we get to the younger men, uh, I'm aware that some of these things here uh, might seem a little out of touch with reality, it might seem a little old-fashioned, Well done, Evan, for getting through it without feeling too awkward. When we read that the younger women, for example, are to be busy at home, what are we to make of that? Has Paul kind of got these women under house arrest? How do we make sense of a phrase like that that kind of sounds a bit tone deaf to modern ears? Well, the first thing to notice is that these aren't just younger women. But the young women Paul is talking about here in verse 4 and 5 are both wives and mothers. In fact, literally the, the term younger women uh, in the original language translates as new or, or fresh women, right? which I think hints towards those, not that are younger women, but that are newly married women. So they are younger, but the focus here is on young mothers, young wives. Now this is important because when we read the words busy at home... Uh, there's a modern instinct that wants to rail against this kind of language. Uh, Some people would claim this is derogatory, uh, even misogynist, depending on who you meet. But as any mother or even father can tell you, life with young children at home is naturally just plain busy. It can be extremely chaotic at the best of times. Uh, In fact, being a busy mother at home uh, should arguably some of the most dignifying and celebrated work on the planet. I think in some respects we should be looking at this and thinking this is a great thing. The problem is that our current culture has moved from one which used to champion mums in the home and think this is one of the most dignified, greatest kind of careers on the planet into one which now belittles it. We have a society that thinks that being a stay-at-home mum makes her somehow a second-class citizen And yet nothing, I want to say this again, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not advocating that women should necessarily quit their jobs and become full-time homemakers. Rather, I'm saying that it's important that we defend the honour and integrity of mums who choose to do this, who choose to undertake the most important work on the planet and encourage others to see this as a valued and precious gift that it truly is. Now, some of you uh, may know of the Babylon Bee. Some of you may like it. Some of you may hate it. Um, But this came up in my feed recently. It was a satirical uh, news article, and the headline was this. I've accomplished nothing today, says mum who spent all day nurturing infinitely precious human souls. Now, the reason this is funny and awkwardly revealing is precisely the fact that it cuts deep to the core of our modern attitude to motherhood. That that to some degree we consider it this sort of worthless pursuit when she could be climbing the corporate ladder, she could be earning her way through society, she could be financially contributing to the family household. And so if we find ourselves thinking this sort of thing, then perhaps, just perhaps, we've lost some of the meaning and importance of the Christian home, as stated here in Titus 2. Now, I'm not saying that women can't work or that they shouldn't for this matter. Uh, The last five years of my life going through Bible college would have been extraordinarily difficult if I didn't have a loving wife who worked some amazingly grueling hours in the hospital while I did that. But we live in a society that somewhat belittles this home life. It belittles it far too much, that choosing to be a stay-at-home mum or to not get a job or financially contribute to the household is seen as something... That we should mock or laugh at. And at this, I think it needs to be said that we need to be extremely careful not to join in on that party. Rather, I think as a Christian church, we need to be honouring our younger mums and supporting them and doing all that we can to uphold the sanctity of motherhood and all that it brings, celebrating the mum's indispensable role in society even today. Now, there's a lot of other stuff in Titus 2 for young women, Uh, stuff like submission to husband, which is another kind of awkward firebomb that gets thrown out there. Um, I already touched on this last week with Ephesians 5. So for the sake of that, we're going to move on. Um, If you want to, we can chat about this stuff after church as well, because we're going to press on to the younger men. Now, for younger men, uh, Paul pulls out all of the stops. Uh, for this, he gets his thesis ready. He writes a twenty-page article. Uh, his long speech, all done up, ready to kind of hit the young men hard at Crete. And to the young men, he says this: <clears throat> "Young men, be self-controlled. That's it. That's his only command to young men: be self-controlled. Nothing more." Now, this while this might seem a little bit unfair. It might seem he's going kind of easy on the young men, especially given the plethora of things he's commanded to teach older men and older women and, and the older women that are teached to the younger women. This might seem like a bit of a cop-out for him to simply say, be self-controlled. Except that if you are a young man, or you're going to be a young man soon, you'd know that this low ball given to you is actually quite a high bar to achieve. And if you can't accomplish this and this alone, so if you can accomplish this, if you can be self-controlled as a young man, then I would say you are doing extraordinarily well. And this idea of self-control here in Titus 2, uh, it means things like having a mental and emotional composure, right? Not being easily distracted Uh, not being rash or overly impulsive as young men are prone to being, but rather being focused and in control. Now, the natural tendency here is to lean towards the problem of self-control when it comes to sexual fulfillment, Uh, reining in things that are outside of God's design. A lot of people throw pornography and other things into the mix, uh, which is certainly true, and young men do need more self-control in this area. Uh, It is painfully difficult sometimes to get on top of these things. But I think the scope of this idea of self-control goes far beyond this. It goes into many other areas of life in which a young man can be rash uh, and very narrow-minded and very quick to judge, quick to lose control. But it's not just young men. Self-control is also an attribute mentioned of the older men. It's mentioned of the younger women as well. And in verse 5, I think it's even implied with the older women as well. But in the case of these young men, I think Paul knows exactly what types of struggles they face, especially in Crete. And he knows that just by asking them this one simple little thing to be self controlled, that is already a task in itself that requires a huge amount of these younger men. Be self controlled. Now, I think Paul has Titus. Uh, his a little protege in mind here when he says this as well, because the very next verse, Paul says to Titus, he ex- expands upon this by saying, in everything, set these young men, right, set the young men an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Titus, in other words, is to be a model young man who demonstrates this self-control. And Paul knows this is a tricky task for Titus. Uh, In fact, he uses a different verb here. So, where he says to teach, and they apply that to all the other categories, here he uses a different word, which means uh, encourage uh, or to urge in verse 6. Literally, it could mean to call one to your side. Uh, It's a very strong, yet it's a highly pastoral term that Paul has for these young men, to call them to account, to call them to moral responsibility, but not to crush them, but to do it by their side, to encourage them. Now, we're going to skip over the slaves bit in verses 9 and 10. Uh, Again, feel free to chat to me afterwards if you have any questions about that, uh, because I kind of want to round it with what we have here that kind of reflects um, the modern Christian household today. Now, this Christian code of conduct that we've just been through, it might seem very rules-based. It might feel very rigid. In fact, for some of us, this might seem near impossible. It might cause us to question whether we're even a Christian if we constantly fail in these areas. It's hard looking at lists like these ones and then to compare them to our own lives, which occasionally look like everything but these sorts of attributes. And so to understand the the key, to understand how we can achieve these things, uh, or probably better put, to understand why we should want to achieve these things, uh, we need to take a look at how Paul finishes off this chapter. And it's a really big one here. He turns our eyes to the gospel of grace. And this is the reason that we're able to live lives that honor God in the way that we act. So this brings us to the final point, which is going to be a bit shorter than that one. Uh, Point three, uh, all this is made possible because of God's grace. So in the final section here in chapter two, Paul gives us uh, the reason we should live this way, and he says it with these words. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Here, it's the grace of God that is the reason we can live these lives. Christian life, it's not one of rules. And we shouldn't see chapter 2 in this way. We're not to see the list here in Titus 2 and think that this is a bunch of rules and code of conducts for the Christian household that we are forced to follow. Rather, the Christian life is one of dependence on God, dependence on what he has done for us. And so when we understand this, when we understand why godliness in Christ should remain as the top priority for us as Christians, that this does matter, it does matter how we live, yet we need to look back and see how amazing it is that God has enabled us to be able to do this. He's enabled us to deny ungodliness, to live a life that is pleasing to Him because of God's gift of grace to us in Jesus Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace which transforms the Christian home. Lord, we thank you for the gift of grace which teaches us to say no to ungodliness and enables us to pursue the righteousness found only in Jesus. Lord, help us as a church, KPC as a whole, uh, who are a bunch of men and women of different ages and life experiences. Help us to appreciate our different strengths and weaknesses. Help us to be sympathetic to the varying struggles we all have when it comes to leading a godly life, but never to overlook sin. Instead, Father, help us to teach one another sound doctrine that is appropriate and right for the Christian life, and help us to live these things out in our lives this week through the strength that you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.